Hello and welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast, where we try to take a look under the bonnet of the market with leading asset allocators. I'm David Thorpe, contributing editor at Asset Allocator. Joining me today is Shanti Kellerman, Chief Investment Officer at MNG Wealth, and David Baxter, Funds Editor at Investors Chronicle. Thank you both for joining me today. Shanti, uh, I suppose one of the biggest questions on allocators and clients' minds right now is around the role of bonds in portfolios after a multi-decade period, really, of strong performance. This year has been tougher, but is it ever right for a client to have nothing at all in in fixed income? Hi, good morning. Uh, Great to be here. Um, So I think you have to take a step back and think about what clients are actually trying to achieve because I think a lot of clients actually underestimate how long their time horizon is for investing. And they often will think, well, it's it's five years, it's 10 years. And most people, if, if you're still working and it's a pension or retirement you're saving for, your time horizon might be 20, 30, 40 years. And in that case, you probably can tolerate a lot of volatility. You might not actually need some of those diversifying assets. You can just own equities and weather it. But it's a conversation. I don't know if sometimes financial advisors are challenging enough to their clients on what their time horizon actually is and therefore the need to have diversification in portfolios. Thank you. Um, David Baxter, uh what what are you hearing in the in the market right now about allocations to uh, fixed income? Yeah, I, one thing I I was kind of interested in mentioning was just I suppose um, you've seen kind of bond yields reach some interesting I suppose kind of psychologically interesting levels again. Um, so earlier this this month you had the kind of US ten year Treasury bond kind of hit and briefly go over three percent again. So now you've had, among some kind of selectors, you've had the discussion start to creep in about where bonds look uh, attractive, um, which is quite interesting. You know, I've heard some people talking about things like kind of maybe shorter duration investment grade, looking as if it's kind of you're now being slightly more compensated for risk, um, with the caveat that, of course, you know, we could be in kind of falling knife territory and um, things could still be very painful from from here on in but i suppose it's interesting in my mind i just wonder kind of are people now tactically moving a little bit more into some of those kind of um yeah kind of government bonds and more defensive bonds that look look a bit vulnerable um in the current situation shanti what are your thoughts on that are we are we getting to the point where maybe bonds are are cheap again i think they're still not cheap unless you go to you know there's parts of the world like if you look at asia fixed income where you have you know you've had the property crunch there you've had all the problems with the china covid you know there some of the fixed income yields are you know approaching 20 percent on on certain bonds but you know tre- okay treasuries at three percent that's where we were in 2018 i think we hit that level mm. germany the 30-year bond has just barely gotten over a percent. Mm-hmm. So I think you'd be hard-pressed to say that's a, a high level. So I think what would, you know, one thing we might see, which in some ways is good for asset allocators in the future is 
divergence of some of where bond yields are going to end up for different countries. You know, the U.S. might end up at, is it three and a half, four? Mm-hmm. Does Germany end up at two? And that has implications, too, because there's been almost no hedging costs the past couple of years for if you're a, a U.K. investor and you want to buy a U.S. bond, interest rates have been the same everywhere. So it'll bring back different dimensions into portfolios when you're thinking about allocating to different markets. And there are probably areas of the corporate market, especially if it's more shorter duration, where you say, well, now if I can get 4% and I know I can get that for five years, that might not be a bad deal. What you're betting on then is inflation is going to come down and not be 7% the next four years. Uh, Shanti, the outflows from UK equity funds have been considerable and persistent indeed in, in recent years. Do you feel this is a case of the traditional home bias uh, dissipating among among clients or, or just a, a reaction to uh, the very many shorter term uh, factors that we've had in, in the UK? I think there has been a shift in clients to be willing to look abroad more, especially when you consider that a lot of the companies and names that are in the news are you know, some of these big technology companies, you know, com- even companies like Alibaba or Tencent in China. And so they've become much more familiar to people and sort of easier to access, easier to invest in. A lot of the returns, if you look at different regions, just go back to the sector composition of, you know, if the UK has more in commodities and healthcare and the US has more in technology and Europe has a lot of financials and materials. And so I think people more and more, like when they talk about their asset allocation, they talk about the region, but then often the rationale is that region has this sector exposure. And sometimes you kind of wonder if you wouldn't just be better off starting with well, this is the sector exposure I want. Because all these companies are, especially the big ones, they're multinationals. And mm-hmm. where a company lists can be completely different to where its revenues come from. So I think it's a positive thing for people trying to sort of broaden the opportunity set, look at more places to have returns. The only challenge it may bring in is some of the currency risk um, that sure. you may see more of. Thank you. Um, David Baxter from Investors Chronicle, how are your, uh, how, how are the guys you talk to in the, in the market thinking about the UK now and, and, and the home bias question? Yeah, it's interesting. I suppose, as we're kind of alluding to, the UK's um, held up slightly better um, again. Um, what, I mean, what I find interesting is perhaps the, the fact that some investors now seem to almost kind of view... Um, some of the kind of countries or regions as um, as kind of proxies for the different investment styles. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I guess similar to what Shanti's saying about kind of sectors, perhaps you view kind of the UK as your kind of more value type play, um, whereas obviously the US is kind of very, very heavy on tech. But um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, and the currency point is interesting as well. I mean, you're seeing in the UK now, you're seeing a lot of kind of potential acquisition activity from, from overseas and concerns that the kind of currency weakness is um, putting a lot of UK companies kind of uh, under threat from overseas buyers and private equity and elsewhere. Um, so perhaps that kind of shifts the, the dynamic as well slightly. How do you think about that, Shanti? I think the other interesting dynamic, you know, if you think about the UK currency has, you know, if we 
go back to when I moved here in 2008, it was, you know, almost two to one. And, you know, where, where, where we've gone since then, we've had a lot of weakness. I think, you know, investors who have been invested abroad and especially in the U.S. have done very well through that currency difference, through the growth in technology companies. And I think more people start to see, you know, it's very hard if you wanted to buy property abroad. But investing is something that's very easy to do to have exposure to different parts of the region. And I think more and more people look at it as, well, if I have my job here, I have my house here, I have all this sort of risk around the UK, I should probably have investment exposure that gives me access to other things. And I think you see more people coming around to that rather than simply saying, well, I just want to invest near to home and things I know. And it also helps that they, they know more of these companies that are abroad. Shanti, valuation is something that I suppose understandably investment uh, professionals talk about a lot and um, David Baxter mentioned, you know, investment styles and certain investment styles place more emphasis on valuation or on certain valuation metrics than than others. But do you think that the terminology that we've all become so familiar with um, really helps clients in any way or... Could it potentially put clients off? I think there's there's always things that are helpful and things that aren't. It's you know if you ask someone how do you define quality, they're they're not really sure. How do you exactly define growth and value? But I think the thing that worries me sometimes is we we equate investing in in stocks to to buying a jumper. You know we we want to get a good deal and it wants want it to be on sale. When in reality they're they're different things. And talking about valuation, it's it's all about what is it today relative to what you think it could be in the future. So even if you you know bought Amazon ten years ago when it had I don't know what the PE was in the hundreds, that you know it was because you thought it was a good deal relative to the growth. Um, so no one is going to go buy something that they they think is overpriced or not a good deal. And and the you know it's. Part of it is because it's really hard to talk about that bit of how do you actually value something and what's the differences. It's easier in some ways to look at something and go, well, it used to be worth this. Now it's cheaper. If we just hope it can, the world can stay the same and it can revert to mean, it'll be okay. But the world very, very rarely reverts to mean. So I think those are some of the challenges. And we just tell people, well, we think something's cheap. And it's kind of a caricature of what the the truth is behind it but it, but it's hard to get across a, you know to an average person sometimes all the work that goes that goes into it and how you actually come up with that process thank you David Baxter, you're always very naturally turned out, so you're a good man to ask about uh, buying a jumper. But uh, for this podcast, I think we'll focus on uh, on, on valuation in, in markets. I know you speak to a lot of fund managers and a lot of fund buyers. The terminology they use tends, I guess, to be pretty con- constant across all of them. But, but when you then take your job being to communicate to end investors, how do you find the valuation comments that, that, that people make? Are they helpful or or are they almost a hindrance? It's difficult, isn't it? Because, um, yeah, I suppose you can you can look at things like kind of PE ratios, but then uh, I suppose things like PE ratios are kind of often criticised for not really telling the whole story. And um, there are lots of kind of factors at play. So, you, you know, we've talked for many years, I, I suppose, prior to 
recent market conditions about how, for example, things like the FANG fang stocks would, on various metrics, look expensive. But then if you look at the actual kind of secular growth drivers um, and the kind of trends that um, push on their, their success, then that's quite attractive. And now I suppose on the other side of Bitcoin, it's quite interesting to look at all these kind of growth stocks getting really hammered and, you know, um, shares much lower than they were six months ago and things like investment trusts and big discounts. And it's it's difficult because now people are trying to get their heads around again, you know, what is actually priced in, um, in terms of whether it's kind of tighter monetary policy or, um, you know, how long inflation kind of kicks around. So um, I, I think some people kind of do find it useful and um, those kind of figures, but also I suppose you need to look at kind of what, um, what factors there actually are as well behind kind of whether something is going to succeed or or not and whether something looks attractive. I, th- I think on the statistics, you often see people, you know, very prone to cherry picking and be like, oh, on the three-year forward or the, <laughs> well, I look at revenue versus sales. And, the, and and so you can kind of chop and change stuff in a, in a lot of <laughs> yeah. different ways. And everyone will have their own favorite <laughs> metric to use. Okay. Uh, Shanti, one of the things that has seemed like an, an obvious trade this year is um, exposure to uh, commodities. As we're all seeing when we when we get our gas bill, commodity prices are certainly rising, um, but volatility is, is also high. And for example, the spot price of many commodities, uh, today's price is much higher than the forward price in, in a year. So volatility is probably very high. But how do you think about uh, commodity exposure in in portfolios. So I think they can provide some diversification, and there's some commodities that you can use your sort of investment skill set on. So, for example, gold is often very related to interest rates, mm-hmm. U.S. dollar, those types of things. If I were to go look at cocoa. Then we're into weather, crops, drought, which is nothing that my skill set, you know, is akin to. And then there's some things that are kind of in the middle. <clears throat> some of the metals that might be things that are related to industrial demand. So that's there. But then you've got, you know, new starts for mining. And a lot of them are driven by, you know, it can be political stuff that that happens. So I think it's much easier to use, you know, things like gold, you know, something you can apply your skill set to. You can look at how it moves. A lot of the other commodities, you be you need someone very specialist to try to work out mm-hmm. when they're going to rise. And the other problem is is access and costs because you you know you see a lot of these products you can only access via futures. You end up with some quite complicated exchange traded products that are using futures rolling, maybe not actually getting the spot price, incurring a fair bit of cost along the way. There's other alternatives that I think you can use, you know, like listed infrastructure, absolute return, that in some ways can probably provide a bit better diversification and are probably more akin to the skill set for multi-asset investing when you can actually identify when they're going to deliver returns. Thank you. Um, David Baxter, I I, I guess you're, you're seeing readers perhaps show a lot more interesting commodities and when you talk to generalist investors they're, they're mentioning their commodity exposure a bit more if they have it yeah i mean it's been it's been very popular and if you look at some of the commodity etfs and i think as well gold etfs in recent months you've had kind of 
massive inflows of people as people have been looking for kind of a place to to hide from things like inflation um as i put personally that always looks a little bit worrying with a slightly kind of paranoid hat on but <laughs> um, um yeah maybe shanty says maybe there are different ways to get uh get exposure i mean i always wonder kind of i guess you're just going to get less of a much less of an uplift but is it is it better just to kind of take the usual um less glamorous kind of diversification approach and have things like your you know uk equity exposure where you will to some extent extent via those kind of sectors capture some of that, those gains um it does seem very i mean it's interesting because if, if you look at some of the um best performers in perhaps the last six months and even last year some of those are things like energy funds and other sector funds um so you're getting huge gains but i suppose your risk is just so much more elevated and that could quickly turn into you know thing things go the other direction um so it's it's an interesting one in terms of how you potentially uh, try and target it uh, so shanti is that would would you think about that as you know rather than commodities just on the uk market or or maybe the european market which which are which allows some exposure to commodity and a lot of exposure to things that might do well when inflation's rising. Yeah, so you, this goes back to what you're saying for you look at the sectors often when you're investing in these markets rather than what region it is. So with companies, you know, if you invested in a, an oil miner or, you know, a whatever, you know, agricultural company, the advantage is you actually own, you know, you own a company and shares in that and it's a real asset and it's producing things. That in itself then brings a whole other host of risks with things like we've had in the news lately, windfall tax. So you might have invested in Shell or BP, hoping you'll reap the benefit when commodity prices go up. Or um, you know, e- EDF in the France is a great example. You know, the government's taken eight eight billion. Um, so that has its own risks as well. Um, and you have to question. I think they commodities can provide some diversification. But how long do they do it for? Because there's oftentimes these kind of bursts where it goes up extremely high and being able to time when to get out, you know, is is a difficult thing to do. If you were going to hold, try to put commodities in a long-term asset allocation, it would add a lot of volatility to that over the long term. I think people tend to look at more of a, you know, short term, can I get in and, in and out? But then that creates the challenges of, how do you get in and when do you get out, which which is, you know, there are people that can do it, but it's it's quite difficult with a lot of the geopolitical factors involved. I, I wanted to just add as well, um, I don't know if you've come across this, Shanti, but I, I feel like with, um, at least if people try and access these trends via funds and if they're interested in, like you said, kind of timing and more tactical moves, perhaps they would be interested in, active managers but at least from i remember speaking to some fund selectors a few years ago they would i think a few years back they were again getting more interested in things like commodities but a problem for them there was that um times have been so difficult for managers there that basically many active managers have been wiped out and products have disappeared so there weren't actually that many ways to kind of get an active exposure to it if that's what you wanted um, I don't know if that's something you've you've seen. Yeah, and also if you think about the things they're investing in, it 
it often can't be a usage fund because if it's if it's a bunch of commodity futures, you, you know, you can't you can put futures in a fund, but it can't be your entire fund. You need, mm-hmm. you know, some bonds, kind of real assets and the like. So it becomes challenging to have a retail product. And then when you I think it's probably a little bit of a function of you're talking about the sort of boom and bust commodity cycle where you know, there might have been a lot of fund managers, but then as it goes down, everyone gets out and then it's it's not economical. And and it's also it's a very difficult market to time uh, in terms of, you know, the skill set's very different in terms of how do you look at fundamentals. You know, the the people that sex successfully trade commodities are most often the companies themselves, like the trading houses within a BP or a Glencore mm-hmm. or a Shell, where they have a combination of their own information. You know, which gives them an edge, and then plus the the market reach, and that's probably not a coincidence that that's where most of it sits. Thank you for that, uh, Shanti Kellerman, Chief Investment Officer at MNG Wealth, and David Baxter, Funds Editor at Investors Chronicle, for your time today. And thank you all for listening. Do remember to tune in to the next edition of the Asset Allocator Podcast. Bye bye. <laughs>